It's interesting, when Jesus turns the road to go to Jerusalem to face his impending death, he begins with him having a blind man brought to him to be healed. And this journey is coming to a conclusion with a blind beggar crying out to him to be healed. In the middle of all that, we see Jesus on three different occasions explaining to his disciples what will happen to him, that he'll be betrayed by his own people, that he'll be brutalized, that he will be murdered, and then he will rise again. And each time his disciples either outright are offended by it, they dismiss it, or they overlook it and start jockeying for position. What Jesus is doing when dealing with the blind is going after those who are fully dependent, showing what we need to be as we are spiritually blind, needing dependence on Christ for our real vision. I don't know if you know this, um, Justin, who plays drums, is blind. Some of you are like, are you allowed to say that? I'm allowed to say that. He is blind. I met Justin years ago, probably close eight, ten years ago, I was going into a youth event to preach at this thing called a Disciple Now. My friend Neil calls them Disciple Maybes, which is actually probably a better term for those. And uh, I went in there, and this band was playing, and this drummer was just killing it. And I played drums back in the day, and so I know when there's a good drummer, because I'm mediocre, and so I know those who are better. And I heard this guy just thrashing, like, I got you, you know, doing his thing. And all of a sudden, this guy gets up, fumbles around, grabs a stick, and starts walking off stage. I'm so mad. He came and see, and he was just nailing it on the drums. You know, at first you're awkward. You go up to somebody, you're like, hey, man, good to see. Ooh, sorry. He was totally cool, man. He was like, no, you can say it's good to see you. It's all right. He'll come up to me now and say, hey, man, it's good to see you. And I'm like, shut up. He'll mess with me. Why are you messing with me, Justin Romack? But I asked him, what's it, what's it like? What's it like? And he's like, oh, I don't know. I'm on a blind baseball team, and we have to wear blindfolds, and we have beeping balls and buzzing bases. And... But everything he does, he needs. He has a seeing-eye dog, and he has a stick, and his wife helps him, and people help him. And when he's on Twitter, he has some of the best tweets, best grammar. And I'm like, how do you do that and he's like oh I got all these equipment where I can do it he'll send like these amazing emails and read them back on braille but everything he does is dependent on the aid and help of something or someone else and I think a lot of us take for granted our own dependency on things because we have bought into what we see the disciples buying into our own dependent capability of being independent and that's how we approach God, much like the rich guy that we saw earlier in Mark 10 who goes to Jesus saying, hey, I've kept the laws, I've done all these things, what else do I need to do to inherit the kingdom? And Jesus says, hey, go give away everything you have, sell it, and then come and follow me. And the guy walked away because he was banking only on his ability to make himself right with God. He wasn't dependent on anything but himself to be made right with God. You see that even with the disciples, hoping in this Masonic warlord king that would come destroy the Roman Empire and then give him high seats of ranking in his posse. And he kept telling them, hey, if you want, you want to be great, become a servant of all. They still weren't getting it. They still didn't understand what was required. They didn't understand the depth of their own spiritual bankruptcy, their own spiritual blindness. 
They believe they were thriving in life, thriving in spiritual things, yet they're fumbling around, making a wreck of everything. And so we pick up here in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 46, and we see this difference in a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. And they came to Jericho, and this day was Jesus, his disciples, and those who were following him. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting at the roadside. Let's be clear. A blind beggar, especially in this culture, offered no value to anyone. He was marginalized, and all he did was consume resources and beg and inconvenience and bother. That's what he had to bring to the table. Nothing. He was bringing nothing. And so I I understand kind of the, the bother around the way people responded because when he heard that It was Jesus of Nazareth. He began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, you are the promised Son of David, the Messiah, the one who is coming to rescue your people. Please have mercy on me. Because of sin, it would have been right for this man to be left blind and bankrupt and eventually dead. After all, the wages of sin is death. So this man was reaping the consequence of ongoing sin, not only his own, but the sin of all people. And so when he cries out to Jesus, he makes this proclamation of almost like a last-ditch effort. Jesus, son of David, it's it's a testament of this man's faith, believing you're able. You're able He had no wealth to bring. He had no good deeds to point to. He had no time with Jesus serving in his entourage. He he didn't have any credibility or education. He was a blind beggar, trash, put to the side. He cries out with acclamation, "All all he had, please have mercy. A real simple definition of mercy is not receiving what you deserve. Grace is receiving a gift you don't don't deserve. Mercy is basically not getting what you do deserve. Crying out for mercy, this man was acknowledging that it would be okay for him to remain as he was. Yet if anybody could or would have mercy, it would be Jesus. My point for this morning is very simple. And just so you know, since it's my last sermon for a little bit, it's only two pages long of notes, so that means I'll probably go an hour. So when I have four to six pages, I, I'm much more contained. But you'll have time to forget. And, they re- and many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Rebuke? Hey, moms, you probably understand rebuke. Dad, you understand it a little bit, but, but moms, you know rebuke. It, it's, it's not that, hey, hey, cut it out rebuke it's kind of that end of the rope why are you being such a fool 
indignation of, what are you doing? That's the emphasis and the unction behind a rebuke. Not a correction. Hey, buddy, Jesus is real busy right now. He's got important things to do. Tone it down. They're rebuking this guy and telling him to be silent. Shut your mouth. Be quiet. He has no time for you. Whatever they're saying, they're correcting him. And so here's how the guy responded. He cries out all the more. Desperate. Not caring what anybody thought. Not caring what it would cost socially. Not caring if he might not look cool. He cried out more to Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. When you're desperate, you'll cry out. And the truth is, we're all desperate. But for whatever reason, we won't cry out. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. It's interesting how the crowd and those with Jesus changed their demeanor a bit. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart. Get up, he is calling you. So they went from rebuking this guy to like, okay, well, Jesus wants to talk to you. Come here. I remember the rich guy. The rich guy came up to Jesus, bowed down, called him good, and Jesus is like, why are you calling me good? Because the man's heart was to come to present his resume and show his checklist and, and, and really tell Jesus how he's earned his way to be made right with God and Jesus then sent him away depressed because the one thing that he needed to do if he wanted to try to be perfect, which that thing wouldn't have done it, but it would have showed his valuation of Christ being more valuable than his possessions would have then provided a way for him to make a declaration, a proclamation of faith. So Jesus called the man to him. Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak... He sprang up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The rich guy was saying, here's what I have done. But Jesus asked this man, what, what can I do? What, what do you want me to do for you? What is it that you want? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi or teacher, let me recover my sight. I, I just want to see. I was talking about Justin earlier, and the one time that he was able to regain sight briefly was at the birth of his son. And he was able for a few days, for a little period of time, to see his baby boy see his wife and I see clearly before his sight went away completely. It's an amazing story that I hope he'll share with us sometime of what that was like. The man just said, I, the disciples were saying, I want to be at your right hand and at your left hand in your kingdom. The rich guy said, hey, what, what do I need to be right with God? Jesus would present to them an illustration of like, hey, you want to, you want to be great? Be like a child who's dependent this man comes to him, he's got nothing. He's blind, he's a beggar, 
He's got nothing. All he had was hope to cry out to Jesus. Jesus heard his cry, called him forward. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now notice here, his faith isn't his ability to believe, but the object of his faith, the one in whom he goes to, the one in whom he asks, is able and willing to restore his sight. But it's interesting, Jesus then tells him, all right, go on your way. Look what happens. And immediately, immediately, Euthus, he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. His sight was recovered. He didn't just settle for the benefit of the healing of Jesus. He then pursued and wanted the person of Jesus. He wasn't just going after the benefits that Jesus could provide him but he followed after him. See, many of us approach Jesus much like a drive through We come up and, how may I help you today? And like my friends at Chick-fil-A, it's always their pleasure, their pleasure. I try to out-pleasure them sometimes. We show up and we're like, I want 20 chicken nuggets. Like, sir, we don't make a 20 count. Then do math. 12 plus 8 equals fat guy. All right, so... hungry we tell them what we want they give us our order and whether it is really or not it's their pleasure that's their job to find pleasure in serving you jesus is not a drive-through he's not a sonic button that we come and push on so we get what we want when we want it and then when we don't get what we want when we want it we complain See, we approach Jesus as consumers, not as people who are desperate for a touch of the living God. He's not something to be consumed. He's someone to be enjoyed. The man recovered his sight, and he followed Jesus on the way. I want to make three observations here. And they call it a day. The first thing we see here is that Jesus is both personal and he's powerful. Typically, if you have powerful people, they're not often experienced as personable or approachable or people you can be with. And I, I don't know about you, but a lot of times I treat Jesus as if he doesn't need to be bothered with my little life my little problems. That he's not really worried about all of my life. He's worried about me behaving myself, doing good things, being generous when I can, not doing bad things, and it's very transactional. And as long as I don't do anything to draw attention to myself out of being disobedient in in accordance with his calling and nature, then I kind of fly under the radar because powerful people are busy people and there's no way he'd really want to be bothered with all of that. What I'm doing there is then limiting the eternal all-knowing God and making a God in my own image. Because we see Jesus time and time again with his own disciples who would eventually betray him, not very far from here. With people who 
are just ignored in his society and in ours. He comes to them and seeks to know them, to show them that their worth or value isn't based upon what society places on them. Their worth and value is in the value that he gives to them because he's creator over them and redeemer of them. We serve a God that is personal. We serve a God that is approachable. We serve a God that desires to relate with you. As you read his scriptures, don't read it. How many of you, by show of hands, have a quiet time sometimes, anytime? I'm not going to ask you. I'm not going to be like, if you read your Bible five times a week, raise your hand. I'm not going to do that. Just raise your hand. You've had in your life, at times, a quiet time of some sort. You have some time. And sometimes you're like, I'm a parent of eight kids. There's no quiet, right? But, but that, that moment of quiet, and I remember I had a mentor of mine. He said, Casey, stop having quiet times. And the handbrake in my Baptist learning went up. Heretic. I mean, everybody knows that's one of the sacraments in the Baptist world. Lord's Supper, baptism, giving, quiet time, serving, potlucks. No beer in public. Why are y'all laughing? He says, no, don't have a, don't have a quiet time. Have a not-so-quiet time where you approach God's Scriptures expecting for Him to speak to you. Approach the living Word of God as a son who is needy to hear from his dad. Don't have a quiet time. Don't whittle away and die like the Pharisees just so you could be right about God things. Go to the living and active Word of God that you might be refined that you might be refreshed, that you might be encouraged, that you might know God. So that when you open your mouth, eternity comes out. When someone loses a husband, you don't just throw cliches and wounds. You can say, I'm so sorry, I love you. But God is mindful and is near. When someone loses a baby or can't have a baby, you can go and say, God is mindful, for he himself has given up the child. You can point them to hope in the scripture that you can't provide on your own. There are no words at times that we can say, and at times our words fail us. But we have an eternal, personal, powerful Savior who can take the most utter broken things and bring redemption and meaning and purpose and power. He can take dead things and make them alive again. He can take sick things and make them whole. He can take the blind and give them sight. And he does so not so that we feel better about us, but so that we might see the displayed power of God and the care of God for his people. That's what we need. We don't need solutions, we need a Savior. The Jesus we see pausing, being interrupted by this blind beggar, not one that you want to bring to the banquet to try to raise more money from. He goes to the one that's like, why? How will this guy help you at all? Type of person. 
calls him near. Ask him what he wants. He's personal. He's personal. He, he cares. He proves that he cares by giving his life. And he displays his power by raising his son. He's personal. He's powerful. That's our Jesus. Because Jesus came for the broken and the needy, not for those who have the resume in their life put together. So because he's both personal and powerful, this leads into number two, is that Jesus really cares about what we want and what we need. The problem is, is what we want and what we need when we're not living in a way that we understand the personal connectivity that we have with the God of the Bible, when we don't live in such a way that we acknowledge his nearness, even in horrible situations, we then want things that we believe will make us well outside of him and his presence. And so it's important to understand that Jesus isn't a slot machine that you put your quarters of good works in, pull it, and hope to win a big jackpot. Now, just because you want it doesn't mean you need it. And just because you want it doesn't mean it's best for God's glory or for your good. And just because you want it doesn't mean He owes us anything. But think about the blind guy. What if Jesus kept walking? What did He have to lose by desperately crying out? See, most of us at best, have a lukewarm walk with Jesus because we're self-sufficient, self-sustaining, independent, and we're not that bad of people. The challenge is you walk a very dangerous tightrope of subtly believing that anything you do contributes to what makes you right with God. That doesn't preach a gospel. That's anti-gospel. And I say it up here. I'm not even hiding it. It's like it's probably not good for PR or for getting more people to come to church. But there are many people who attend church in our area that do not know or love Jesus. And I know what you're thinking, Pastor, you don't know a person's heart. You don't, you don't know what's going on in their life. Look, I don't. And I'm not sitting here thinking like, maybe, no, yes, not at all. Some, I'm not doing that. But there's a whole lot of dependence in our area on our abilities or leveraging others or siphoning off God's work in other people to make us feel like we're more godly. Just because your wife is godly and spend times in the words and might talk to you about it a little bit doesn't mean that's your godliness, men. And vice versa. Jesus cares about what we want, what we need. Everyone loves Psalm 37.4 until they study what it means. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Yes. God wants me to have a Lamborghini. It would make him look good. I'll even put a cross on the window. I'll share the gospel with anybody that pulls me over. Oh, Lord is right. No, Dana, Dana, you're right. It's like, oh my gosh. No, that's not what it means. 
Delighting in someone reorients your life. I delight in my wife Stephanie. And I delight in the Lord who gave her to me and the covenant that we've made together. And therefore my life is reordered in many different ways because of that delight. Delighting ourselves in the Lord. I mean, think about it. We reorient our lives around what we delight in. We do. We orient our money. We orient our time. We orient our pleasures. We orient everything towards what we're delighting in. So you want to know what you're delighting in? Where you spend your time, your money, your attention, your affections, your loyalties. What are you delighting in? It's not that we delight in God enough, it's that we are far too short in our delight of God. And we expect other people to do their delighting so that they can come delight on us and then have a delightful week. I don't delight in delighting on you so you can delight for the week. That's not the purpose of preaching the gospel. The purpose of preaching the gospel is so the saints to be equipped for the work of ministry for sinners to be called home to Christ. For you to be equipped to go and pick up the spiritual fork and feed yourselves. And then to do what the Bible says. Love God, love your neighbor, make disciples. We all delight in something. Some of us delight in our own depression. We know it so long, and I struggle since I was a little boy with anxiety and depression. And there's seasons where that's kind of my safe place. I'm really good at being negative, and it makes me pretty funny in a sarcastic sort of way. But then I'm not delighting in the Lord. I'm not delighting in the one who uses those seasons so that I can serve him and others more faithfully. Church. My desire is that your affections for Christ will grow. And you can't expect the church staff to do all that for you. We serve a personal and powerful Savior. We serve a Savior that cares about what we want and what we need. I have a mentor and he saved up enough cash because he's a Dave Ramseyite for a new-to-him BMW. And his church, his church was $35,000 short on their building campaign. And so he prayed about it, he wrote a check, and he bought a four-door Ford Escort, bright red. He said, every time I looked at that parking lot, I saw a BMW. And he wrote that check to the church, and they had what they needed. Because his delight was in the Lord, not in his possessions. He got a BMW later on, I mean. New to him. But he delights in the Lord. He delights in the Lord's work and his kingdom. He orders his life around those things and investing in young punks like me. The same guy that when I was 22 years old, like, I want to start a nonprofit. I want to be Billy Graham. Don't have the same anointing. Every week I invite people to trust Christ and people are like, hmm. 
Why do they use a sweet bread? Why can't it be more bitter? I don't know. What are you delighting in? Are you coming desperate and needy like a blind beggar? Are you coming proud and upright because of your good works and deeds? Pride leads to destruction. A haughty or arrogant spirit leads to a fall. Jesus knows you're broken, and Jesus knows he's your solution. Ask him for what you need. Number three is this. Jesus is honored when we hope in him to make us whole, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and to meet our needs. So he's honored when we hope in him to make us whole and to meet our needs, basically to follow him. So not to transact with him, not to come receive from Jesus and come back when we need something, but to relate with Jesus and then walk with him. That's what happened to this blind guy. He came and he got what he asked for, but then he saw there was so much more to have. Has your soul been forgiven and accepted and redeemed by Jesus to the point where you realize I was blind, now I see. I was bankrupt, now I have it all because of him. And have you given that value to him to orient your life, to delight in him so that you might glorify him, to show the world who he is by honoring him with all of your hopes? That when you go to your doctor's appointment, and I'm not one of those people who says don't go to a doctor, or, you know, take supplements or herbs or whatever to like fix your stuff. I mean, sin has its effects. But that everything we do is praiseworthy. That we see it through the lens of whether it's medical help or financial help, or whatever, it's ultimately God's providential care over his people. And that we don't separate church stuff from business stuff or church stuff from real estate stuff or church, that all of this is from God and for God. Guess what? Business was created by God. It was created for God. Parenting, marriage, neighboring, evangelism, all God's. All of it. And he's honored when we hope in him. He's honored when we cry out to him. He, he's honored when we say, I've messed up. He's honored when we no longer feel like we have to act like the first Adam who hid and he blamed when he was exposed in his sin. But rather we can come out confidently knowing that even those things are forgiven. That he's enough. We serve a personal and powerful Jesus who cares about what we want and what we need. And he's honored when we hope in him to make us whole and to meet our needs. Jesus came for the broken and the needy. And the invitation of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 is the invitation for us today. We're all blind beggars. We have nothing to bring. We don't have ability to see on our own. We have nothing to offer. I was recently talking to a, a brother in faith that dealt with a prolonged season of depression, which 
The enemy is used to keep him from speaking the gospel truths. I told him, go share it. Because in sharing it, you'll be preaching it to yourself. Go share the gospel. Go share it. Because it's not about your faithfulness, it's about his. It's not about you feeling it, it's about you knowing him. This is the invitation. Come to me, Jesus. All who labor and are heavy laden and busy and burned out, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Is your soul weary? Is your soul bankrupt? Are your eyes spiritually blind? Then come to Jesus. Let's pray. Let's just be still and quiet for a moment. I'm less concerned about you evaluating how you feel and want you to prayerfully ask God, how are we? And if you've yet to place your hope and your trust in the person and work of Jesus, you and the Lord are not okay. You're at odds. You need to be forgiven. And you can and will be forgiven by crying out to Jesus for mercy. He will hear you. He will give it to you. Father, we thank you that it's true that while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. And his death was not in vain. His death was not the end of an era of a really good prophet. It was the crushing of your son for the payment of sin. Lord, in your kindness, you did not see fit to leave him dead, but you rose him from the dead, defeating sin, defeating death, and defeating Satan, so that any man, woman, or child who places their hope and trust in him will be forgiven and accepted by you. Lord, I pray for any man, woman, or child in this room that has yet to cry out to Jesus for mercy. You let them see that they do not have a relationship with you, but you are calling them to they would come to Jesus. They would hope in Jesus. Father, I pray for my fellow believers here who have been wandering or who haven't been feeling you or who haven't been delighting in you, Lord. I just, as I was preparing for this sermon, Lord, I know that my delight has not been found in you in all things. And it was both convicting and freeing. Lord, conviction is a gift not happened to 
push us further in self-absorption, but rather it's like a key unlocking a, a jail cell inviting us out to freedom. Your word says, God, in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, bring that awareness of that cleansing and that promise here today. Liberate us and free us, Lord, to begin daily pursuing you, knowing you, loving you, serving for you, orienting our lives around your kingdom and not our own. That we might be aware that we all are blind beggars, but you count us as sons and daughters. You do it for your glory and for our good. So as we continue this time, Lord, of honoring you by remembering the life and death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus through the Lord's Supper, the promises of this new promise. God, that we would do so with grateful and mindful hearts. So meet with us, Lord, as we continue this time of worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.